have been previously ascertained by law. So you don't make up the district after the crime Let is Let me committed. interrupt here. We are beginning the Statues and Stories okay. segment of our show with Adam Levinson. Yours truly, Mac on the Rock, with Ed Vidal. This is WSQF 94.5. And commence to repeat yourself. We're talking about the Bill of Rights, part yes. two. That's right. So welcome, everybody. This is the continuation of a discussion from last week. And at the end of the segment, we'll talk a little bit about the Sixth Amendment, because I know that's something that Ed wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. And let me just give a little bit of a survey of the field of what we're going to cover tonight. So uh, the first thing is we're going to review a little bit from yesterday or from the last show from last week. Uh, after we talk about and get everyone up to speed, the questions that I want to answer tonight, and I think that's a little bit useful that we identify in advance so people at the beginning of the show can realize what we're hoping to answer and analyze during our hour. So the first question I want to tackle today is the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. What were they arguing over and what happened to the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists after this debate over the Bill of Rights was resolved? So we want to talk about the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and what happened to them. <clears throat> I also want to talk about the incorporation doctrine. And we left off last week talking about how the Bill of Rights really only applied as it was written. And just to remind everybody, what is the Bill of Rights? The Bill of Rights was the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. The Bill of Rights was uh, really written by James Madison, but he didn't invent it from whole cloth. He borrowed these ideas from English common law, from Mason, who had written the Virginia Bill of Rights. He also borrows a lot of these ideas from, when we say English common law, from the Magna Carta from 1215. These are laws that came through the English Bill of Rights, which was 1689. So Madison takes bits and pieces and he cobbles it together, which was adopted by the U.S. Congress in 1790. It was the first Congress, so 1790, and then it takes a little bit of time for it to be ratified by the different states. So that's the Bill of Rights that, that we left off with last week. And uh, the other topics that if we have time to cover, I want to go into more detail about the Virginia Bill of Rights, which again was written by James Mason. And I also want to talk about the Northwest Ordinance. Because interestingly, these ideas and these rights weren't just in English law. They were already in American law. And I want to talk about that Northwest Ordinance that a lot of people may not know. Yeah, have this is the first I'm hearing of it, so please explain. So it's fascinating. There's going to be some ironies. I always like to expose historic ironies. And then I have some terms. I'm going to tell them to you in advance uh, so you can... Uh, People can look them up on the computer if they want. But the, this English concept of purveyance, and I'm going to read that and spell it to you, P-E-R-V-E-Y-A-N-C-E. -E -E. We're going to talk about purveyance and how that relates to some of these English concepts. And then last of all, if we have time, I want to pick and choose some of the different amendments. So we can talk about the Sixth Amendment. I want to talk about the Ninth Amendment. And I want to talk about the 27th Amendment. And the 27th Amendment is the last, if you were to look at the Constitution, if anyone has a pocket Constitution handy, if you open it up to the Constitution and then you look at the Bill of Rights, and then the Bill of Rights is then followed by Amendments 11 through 27. So the 27th Amendment is the most recent amendment, which was adopted in 1992. And there's a very interesting story on the, the 27th Amendment that I'm hoping you'll ask me about. So save me five minutes at the end because I want to make sure we talk about the 27th Amendment. And uh, these are the concepts we're going to cover today. So let's back up and, and uh, pick up where we left off. And by way of background, we talked last week about how the Federalists, including Madison and Hamilton, didn't put a Bill of Rights into the original Constitution. And the original Constitution was drafted during that fateful, important summer, that miracle, if you will, that providence, that we were able to accomplish the necessary compromises. It wasn't perfect, but uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic Constitution that we've inherited and we're grateful for. So that was during that summer, beginning in May through September of 1787 in Philadelphia, that long, hot summer. They, they 
are able to come up with these masterful compromises that lay the foundation for our government today, the Constitution. So the problem was they didn't put a Bill of Rights in there. And we explained last week how Hamilton and Federalist 84 thought it would be dangerous to do a Bill of Rights. And we gave examples of Noah Webster saying that, you know, how can we list all of our rights? And he used some irony and some sarcasm to say, do we need to list that you can hunt on the weekend and you can lie, go down to bed and lie, wake up on your left side and flip over to your right side? Do we need to list that you can fish in the rivers and you can, you know, do you have to have the right to eat and drink? So he's trying to say this is... Yeah, the famous uh, slippery slope. Slippery slope. Once you start identifying rights, if you leave things out, what does that mean if you've omitted certain rights? And that was what Hamilton was concerned about. What would happen if you didn't list all the rights? Would we lose those rights? So we, we gave examples of Benjamin Rush, Rush, another Federalist who thought it would be absurd and it would be a disgrace to try to list rights because we are the people. The people have to say that we're protecting our rights from ourselves. So the Federalists understood that the Constitution, in their mind, created the protection of rights by the structure of the Constitution, the checks and balances. And they thought that the state constitutions protected rights, most of the states. So they thought that the system that they'd set up, checks and balance, separation of powers, would protect rights. So that's what we talked about last week. Let me give you some more wonderful examples of some of these quotes. And when people read these newspapers, and I happen to collect some of them, from this time period, 1787, and when you had these debates, because remember, when the, once the Constitution was, was adopted in Philadelphia, it had to be ratified by nine states. And you had these very sometimes passionate discussions, not just at the Constitution ratification conventions at the different states, but in the newspapers. People are airing out their opinions, uh, and that's how you get the Federalist Papers written by Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, because they're trying to convince the members of the New York population to support the Constitution so it could get ratified in New York. So let me give you some other quotes from this time period, another Noah Webster quote. And when I mention Noah Webster, it's who you think it is. It's the same Noah Webster who's famous for Webster's Dictionary, but he was a Federalist and he was a writer, and uh, he would write opinions in newspapers. So uh, he, he mentions that if we tried to do a Bill of Rights, it would, quote, sow the seeds or sow the seeds of discord from New Hampshire to Georgia. So he's worried about the consequences if we tried to do that. Uh, he also, this is another quote from uh, one of the Philadelphia newspapers called the Freeman's Journal. This is an anonymous, and sometimes they would write anonymously under pseudonyms. So here, the, I, I like this image, the worship of the ox, the crocodile, and the cat in ancient time and the belief in astrology and witchcraft by more modern nations did not, praise, did not prostrate the human understanding more than the numerous absurdities proposed in these amendments. So this is another example of how people got very passionate. Should we have a Bill of Rights? Should we not have a Bill of Rights? Here's a, another little story about the time frame. And uh, here, I'm going to quote from Madison. Um, Madison eventually described this process of getting the Bill of Rights through Congress, and this is his words, as a nauseous pro project. And uh, others criticized the, his proposals as being milk and water, meaning it was all watered down because some thought the Bill of Rights should be stronger, should have additional things mixed in. And, of course, we'll talk about what Madison was able to put into the Bill of Rights and why these were great decisions that were reached. So what, one last bit of background about the Bill of Rights. John Hancock, and remember, it has to get adopted through, you know, in order to get an amendment adopted, it has to be ratified by the states. So John Hancock was the governor of Massachusetts. And uh, people remember John Hancock was very important for the Declaration of Independence. John Hancock was the president, if you will, of the Continental Congress, and he writes his name. Everyone is familiar with John Hancock, the expression of a signature. So John Hancock, you know, put his neck on the line when he signed the Declaration of Independence, and he didn't just sign it. He made it very clear that he was signing it. Uh, so that's why he wrote his name so long and so big. <clears throat> but in 1787, 
1788. He's the governor of Massachusetts, and Massachusetts is sort of uh, on the fence. Do they ratify? Do they not ratify? And as of that time, five states had ratified Massachusetts. It's, it's going to be controversial. One of the reasons is that Eldridge Jerry, who was one of the members of the Constitutional Convention, Eldridge Jerry was one of those who made a motion for a Bill of Rights, and that was voted down in September of 1787. So fast forward a year, 1788, it's going before the Massachusetts uh, legislature, or their convention, rather, and Hancock is the governor, which has a lot of sway on is it going to get adopted or not. And um, it's interesting that the, the politics of what he winds up doing. He was suffering with gout, so uh, he had a painful attack of gout, and he purposely absented himself from the convention, and many have thought that he wanted to be on the winning side of the debate, so he's trying to test the winds of is it going to get ratified or not get ratified. And the Federalists reach out to John Hancock because they realize he's a man who's very well respected. He's the governor. And they said to him, you know what, it looks like Virginia is not going to ratify. There's a lot of opposition in Virginia. Patrick Henry, by the way, we'll talk about later, is one of the anti-Federalists who's opposing it in Virginia. So they reach out to the Federalists to Hancock and they say, listen, this thing may not get adopted in Virginia, which means that George Washington, who a lot of folks think will become president, if Virginia doesn't ratify, Washington can't be president. And John Hancock, everybody knows who you are. So that was one of the ways that they convinced, it's believed, Hancock to support ratification in Massachusetts. And in the compromise that was reached, was Hamilton and some of the others say that, you know what, we will, we will ratify this Constitution as long as you do the Bill of Rights, which is what Elbridge Jerry wants and a lot of the anti-federalists want. So that's a little story about how by hinting to John Hancock that Virginia will not ratify or probably won't ratify, that incentivized Hancock to support ratification in Massachusetts with the prospect that maybe he could become president. Have you ever heard that story? Absolutely not. No, I don't. I think Hancock becoming president ahead of George is pretty uh, far-fetched. It's pretty far-fetched, but if Virginia didn't ratify and there was no guarantee that Virginia was going to ratify, Washington couldn't have been president. So that's a little bit of the backstory. That's a hell of a political but bluff. Then, then there would, if Virginia didn't ratify then there would have been no continuous territory to get to North Carolina, South Carolina, and eventually Georgia. So that would have left us with... Two different countries. Yeah, two different countries. You know, let's talk about that because that's a great point. So Virginia at the time was the largest state, and Virginia separated the northern colonies from the southern colonies. You know, the Mason-Dixon line runs from from Maryland to Pennsylvania, east to west. So Virginia is right near that Mason-Dixon line, right near Maryland. So um, interestingly, the debate is... You know, we could spend an hour just talking about the, the debate at the Virginia Convention, which took about a month. And Madison is bringing the charge to support ratification, but he's up against Patrick Henry. He's up against Mason, George Mason, and it is not an easy battle in Georgia. I'm sorry, Georgia in Virginia. But interestingly, what carries the um, you know the victory ultimately that Madison's able to get Virginia to approve is that Virginia became the tenth state, and after Maryland, and after the early states, and then after. Um, trying to think. Um, Virginia may not have been, I may have the number wrong, but, but the, the point is that uh, Virginia realizes that uh, enough states had ratified that we were going to have a country. And once it became clear that, uh, and let me talk about Edmund Randolph real quick. So one of the other framers at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 was Edmund Randolph. And when we talk about what happens after the Constitution takes effect, and you know, I want to answer the question, what happened to some of the anti-federalists? Where are they now, in other words? Right, so Edmund Randolph it was uh, one of the three that don't sign, that makes it all the way to the end, 
to the September time frame but does not sign the Constitution. And remember, the three who didn't sign on that last day was Eldridge Jerry from Massachusetts, it was um, Edmund Randolph from Virginia, and um, I'll, I'll try to remember who the third person who doesn't sign was. Uh, George Mason, George Mason from Virginia. So two Virginians did not sign the Constitution because it didn't have a Bill of Rights, and George Mason also didn't think that the federal government should have so much authority. So it's going to be a close call in Virginia. But at the Constitutional Convention in Virginia, George, uh, I'm sorry, this is Edmund Randolph, eventually sides with the Federalists. So even though he didn't agree to sign the Constitution, once that compromise is reached, and that's really the Massachusetts Compromise. The Massachusetts Compromise was, uh, John Hancock, that if uh, we promise that we'll do a Bill of Rights, then Massachusetts will ratify, and that's how uh, you know we got that compromise. And because of that compromise, and because you had enough states to approve the Constitution, Virginia was left with the choice. The choice was, do we stay out of the country, or do we ratify? And I think that's one of the main reasons why they were able to convince Virginia to ratify, because Edmund Randolph switches. He says, you know what, we've got enough states. So before I wasn't supporting it, but now that we're going to have a contract, we're going to have a, you know, a full-fledged constitution that's going to take effect. It's going to be ratified throughout enough nine states. Might as well Virginia join in. comes in as number 10. So, yes, I am, I'm pre- I am pretty sure Virginia comes in as 10. So it was a fait accompli at that point. So that made it a lot easier for Virginia to come in. And that's also to the credit of Madison and, and Hamilton. They realized that their state it was going to be an uphill battle, so they purposely ar- arranged for the earlier states to ratify that would that would do it without too much controversy. You know, Delaware wasn't too much of a fight in Delaware, and some of the earlier states, the smaller states, came in early. So had Virginia been first, or had New York been first, which very well could have said no, that might have had a whole different outcome for the other states. Yeah, you see that. You see that at the city level and at the county level. Um, a lot of votes are determined by left to the right, right to left on the county commission and on the city commission. You don't want to be, you can count their votes yourself if you're on the fence on an issue, but hey, the last three guys have said yes, and it's a seven-man council, you can go to your left and say, well, that guy's probably going to say yes, therefore this is going to pass no matter what I say. Might as well jump I might in. as well join in on the majority. It works in politics throughout. Uh, so it's good to know that it started. The, the whole nation started that way. And I completely agree. The timing and the procedure matters. And this is another example of what Hamilton did. That Hamilton made made arrangements so that as soon as the early states ratified, he had them set up with horses and messengers so that that news could be sent sent into New York where it was a close call. So as soon as one state ratifies, you know he's got his. Uh, his antenna up. This is uh, Hamilton in New York because he's sort of outnumbered, and there was no guarantee that New York would ratify. So any good news he can get, he wants it delivered pronto. And uh, one of the things that we'll be posting on Statute of Stories when I get around to it is uh, some of these letters. And there's a letter that that is sent by Madison to Hamilton, uh, notifying Hamilton that Virginia just ratified more good news coming. So he's able to, that's momentum really, that's what we're talking about. You you use the positive momentum to your advantage and you delay until you get the momentum that you need. So we, we, we just talked about a little bit of the background about getting the Bill of Rights adopted and ratified, but I want to now talk about the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. So who were some of the Anti-Federalists? And uh, we've mentioned some of the names already, but Let's give some more of the the names. So George Mason, who was from Virginia, and he had written the Virginia Bill of Rights. And interestingly, the Virginia Bill of Rights and the Virginia Constitution that he writes is basically done a month before the Declaration of Independence. And 
Thomas Jefferson, who writes the Declaration, sort of borrows from George Mason's language. And <clears throat> let me ask a trivia question from prior evenings for, for our listeners. Uh, and also, I'll ask the two of you if you want to join in. But um, if anyone goes to Statutes and Stories, or if you Google the Suffolk Resolves, uh, Statutes and Stories has a nice blog about the Suffolk Resolves, and the Suffolk Resolves was in Massachusetts, and this was the Resolves from Suffolk County, which is the county where Boston is, and when Suffolk County and a lot of the other areas around the country were basically making a resolution or giving support for this idea of declaring independence. So uh, it was, it was uh, the Suffolk Resolve was written by uh, some, some folks in Massachusetts, including, and if you go to the website, you can read about it, but not to get too off the topic. But the George Mason, interestingly, also wrote resolves at the time of the Declaration of Independence, and his, his resolves were called the Fairfax Resolves. So interestingly, Mason is not just famous for writing the Virginia Bill of Rights and the Virginia Constitution, but he's also the principal author of the Fairfax Resolves, and then we can compare that with the Suffolk Resolves. So here we're really, we're really talking about the 1776 time frame, and how that moves forward and percolates into 1787 and 1789 with the Bill of Rights. So let me give some Madison, I'm sorry, Madison, some Mason quotes. And Madison had worked closely with Mason during the drafting of the Virginia Bill of Rights. But here are some Mason quotes. And Mason was not a supporter of the Constitution. He did not want a strong federal government. He wanted power to be with the states. And we'll talk about it at the end of the hour about states' rights, those who support state, states' rights. That's a tradition in line with the anti-federalists. So here's some George Mason quotes. So he says there is no declaration of rights, so that's why he doesn't support the Constitution. He says, in particular, there is no declaration of any kind for preserving liberty of the press, of trial by jury in civil cases, nor against the danger of standing armies in times of peace. He wanted those protections in the Constitution. Here's another quote from George Mason. He says that the declaration of rights in the separate states are of no security. And here I'm going to sort of tease out a question. Why did he think that and this was a Federalist argument. Madison and Hamilton would argue that the individual states, many of them have their own Declaration of Rights and Bill of Rights, and the individual states, they protect rights in their own states. We don't need a federal declaration. So Mason makes the argument that the state declarations and the state Bill of Rights are insufficient. And here I'm asking maybe the lawyer in the room, why would Mason who doesn't like federal supremacy, be very suspicious and think that a state bill of rights is inadequate and we need a federal bill of rights. And this has to do with the concept of supremacy. It's federal law supreme, so the federal government could overrule the state, except in sanctuary cities. <laughs> so I'm agreeing with part of what you said, which is that... I don't uh, agree with anything he said. So sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But, but here, going back to this time frame, the concern that Mason had is that the Constitution had a necessary and proper clause, which he was very worried about. He was also worried about federal supremacy. If, if the federal law supersedes state law, then what good is a state constitution giving a Bill of Rights if federal law can supersede it? Right. Here's another question or another quote from Mason. So Mason makes the observation, and, and again, Mason was a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention, and some of his language can be hyperbolic, but he says that it would be totally subversive of every principle which has hitherto governed us, this power, and he's talking about necessary and proper and federal supremacy, this power is calculated to totally annihilate state governments. So he's really worried that this new federal government could uh, eat up and take over and uh, you know, diminish the power of the states. So that's where Mason is coming from. So let, let's talk a little bit about um, the 
And here I want to get into the weeds of the Virginia Bill of Rights. So again, this is George Mason who writes the Virginia Bill of Rights. He borrows from the Magna Carta, and he borrows from the English Bill of Rights. And let me give you some quotes. So what does the Virginia Bill of Rights say, which was the first Bill of Rights written for a state, which is then one of the bases of the U.S. Bill of Rights? It says that no man, written by George Mason, no man should be deprived of his liberty except by the law of the land or the judgment of his peers. And let me repeat that again. Except by law of the land or judgment of his peers. So when Madison sort of tinkers with and, and borrows some of these terms, what does that mean? That you can't be deprived of your liberty except by law of the land. What's that concept called today? Law of the land, you can't be denied of by what? And, due process? And, due process. So this whole notion of due process, you can't be deprived of liberty except by the law of the land. That's due process, right? And except by indictment of your peers, we don't call it peers today. What do we call that? For a trial, and you mentioned the Sixth Amendment earlier, uh, Ed. So when the Virginia Bill of Rights talks about you can't be denied of your liberty except by indictment of your peers, what is indictment of your, what do we call that today? Indictment of your peers is a what? A jury of your peers. Exactly, a grand jury. So these ideas that you need to have indictment of your peers and you know, the, can only be deprived of your liberty by the law of the land, that's due process. And that terminology is coming from the Magna Carta, which we mentioned last, last week, has 63 provisions or 63 separate articles in the Magna Carta. So this is the Virginia Bill of Rights we're quoting from. And then about a month later, on July 4th, this is June, when the Virginia Bill of Rights is written, about a month later you get the Declaration of Independence. Here's another provision from the Magna Carta, which which is, which is used by Mason. <clears throat> and uh, let me see if I can quote some of this. Uh, private property shall not be taken for public use. Um, and he doesn't say, in the Magna Carta, it doesn't use public property not being taken without just compensation. The Magna Carta talks about you can't have seizure of corn or goods except with just compensation. Yep. So let me just take a little a moment to talk about corn, because we know corn comes from the New World. Right. But in the Magna Carta in 1215, let me re just repeat because I talk a little quickly. So it is a product of the New World, meaning the Western Hemisphere, North and South America, which was a staple crop that the Native Americans had, which gets imported back to Europe. So when the Magna Carta talks about you can't take away, the king can't seize corn or other goods, it's not the corn that we think about. So here I'm going to ask the question. In England in 1215, when they talked about corn, what does corn mean if it's not the yellow corn they eat on the court, the, the cob? What did corn mean in England? Wheat and other cereals. Perfect. So for the English, corn wasn't corn. Corn was barley and wheat and grains. So the reason why that's in the Magna Carta is one of the objections to King John was that King John and English kings prior to 1215 had this right of purveyance, which I mentioned earlier at the top of the hour, purveyance. So what is purveyance? And the quick answer is the king, and this was something that the barons did not like, and that's the folks who, uh, along with the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote the Magna Carta, the barons did not like the fact that the king, with his right of purveyance, could seize crops and property of barons or anyone else, uh, as long as the king was promising to pay for it, right? And uh, the king needed to feed his horses or supply an army or whatever the case was. And, and the problem was that the king, although he's obligated to pay for it, he's not necessarily paying for it in a timely manner, and the barons didn't like this right of purveyance. So that gets put into the Magna Carta about if you're going to take property, you have to pay just compensation. That notion of just compensation becomes part of the guarantee in the Fifth Amendment written by, uh, taken by Mason in the Virginia Bill of Rights, and then percolate that through. Yeah, to the, the king would just give you his IOU. 
Exactly. So you get an IOU from the king, but uh, if it's still an IOU and the king doesn't have much money, for whatever reason, because he's spending it on other things... War in Normandy. So that is the right of purveyance that the king had, which was controversial, and it was subject to abuse. Right, yep. So we talked about the Virginia Bill of Rights, and we talked about the English Bill of Rights. For example, the English Bill of Rights had this concept of, let's see if you've ever heard this before, and open up your, your handy uh, Bill of Rights, cruel and unusual punishment. The English Bill of Rights forbids cruel and unusual punishment. Where do we see that today in the American Bill of Rights? We see it in the House of Representatives, uh, no. Pelosi and Schiff. No, no, it's cutting off arms and legs and in uh, under Sharia law. Okay, well, that, that may be true, too. But the Eighth <laughs> Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, comes from yep. when, when Madison writes the American Bill of Rights, the today's Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. That's coming from the English Bill of Rights. So the point is that uh, when Madison writes the American Bill of Rights, the proposals, he's taking it from this long tradition of English history through the English Bill of Rights, through the Virginia Bill of Rights. And last month or last week, we talked about some of the, the, uh, the English philosophers during the Enlightenment, the John Locke's of the world, the Voltaire, the Rousseau in France. All right, so we talked about the English Bill of Rights. Uh, also, okay, well, the, a, for the audience to know, the British... Uh, Bill of Rights is stated as part, since they don't have a constitution, it was stated all by itself? It's a statute of parliament. It was a, It's by statute. It's not, right. it's not really an amendment in any way there or form. No constitu- no, there's no there, written constitution, but they have statutes that were, these were adopted in 1689 as part of the coronation of William and Mary as Protestant king and queen of, of Britain. And William was also king or prince of uh, the Netherlands, Holland. William of Orange. Yeah, so he was from Holland. He was Protestant. And Mary was a a daughter of the prior king. I forgot his number. Charles II, maybe. James. James II. And so she was Protestant. And James was Catholic, so he got pushed out, and his daughter and his son-in-law got the, the kingdom. How about, and he was pushed out because he didn't want these Bill of Rights? He was Rights? Catholic. Or, or, and, or just because he was Catholic? he was Catholic. also a little tyrannical. Uh-huh. Okay, and, 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 and out of this, you're saying this because out of this came the Bill of Rights? Yes, or no? it came out of this. Okay. Of 1689 in Great Britain. And it's still in, in effect, to, you know. Thank God. Well, yep. I guess. I guess. So I I completely agree with Ed's summary. And Manny, your question is excellent, and it really gets to the basis of why have a Bill of Rights. And the English Bill of Rights was just, as as was mentioned, statutory. So if Parliament can adopt a statute, they can change it, they can uh, diminish it, they can impair it, they can, you know, Parliament, it's very easy for a Parliament to amend, and then, uh, you know, how how worthwhile is a Bill of Rights if it can be changed by the majority? Because Bill of Rights are supposed to protect the minority. And that gets into another conversation about what is the purpose of a Bill of Rights. So that one of the differences or innovations on the American approach as opposed to the British approach was that we made the Bill of Rights, elevated it to a constitutional level, which would supersede statutory law. So I think that's an important innovation. So let's move on to, we, we talked about the English Bill of Rights, and I'll just give you another example. So the English Bill of Rights talks about cruel and unusual punishments and ensures the rights of the subject to petition the king. So go back to your handy, uh, your, your little Bill of Rights flyers or pamphlets or little manuals if you have one. Uh, so the petition the king, which dates back to 1689, the English Bill of Rights, where is that in the American Bill of Rights? But it doesn't say petition the king. And Manny, this is something we talked about last week. Oh, you, you no! You, it's the First Amendment, the right to petition, the for right grievances, for yeah, petition their government for a re- redress. redress of grievances. There you go. So here.
were tracing the First Amendment, which has five parts of the First Amendment, but the right to petition the king or petition the federal government for redress of grievance comes from and gets translated through the English Bill of Rights. All right, so let's let's segue now. We talked about uh, some of the Federalists. Let's talk about some of the other Federalists. So George Mason, he wrote the the, um, the Virginia Bill of Rights, the Virginia Constitution. Edmund Randolph, also from Virginia, was one of those who did not vote for it when it went before the Constitutional Convention. I'm sorry, when it was at the yeah the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, but he insists on a Bill of Rights, and then he flips his position at the Virginia Convention because he sees that we've got nine states, so let's support this as long as they agree to a Bill of Rights. Sam Adams. Okay was an anti-federalist. George Clinton, we mentioned last week from New York, he wrote under the name Cato. I think we mentioned Robert Yates, who wrote under Brutus, they think. And we mentioned another anti-federalist in New York. And the two, and we mentioned this last week, the, the, there were three from the New York delegation. Robert Yates, John Lansing, and who was the third delegate from New York, Manny? Gotta be, it's got to be Hamilton. There's my man, Hamilton. So those were the three delegates. After six weeks, Yates and Lansing leave because they think this Constitution's running amok. They're giving too much power to the federal government. So Yates and Lansing leave, and Yates had taken notes um, before he left, and his, his notes get published in 1821 time frame because they put a lock on how many years before you can publish your notes from the Constitution. So the historians, the first place they look is Madison took notes all the way through, but Yates also took notes, and he, they think, was, was Brutus, writing under that pseudonym. And I want to talk about John Lansing real quickly. So John Lansing is one of the one of the anti-federalists who leads the charge to fight adoption in New York. And his name actually came up, although we didn't realize it at the time, when we talked about for, I don't know if we did it for one week or two weeks, but we talked about the, the Levi Weeks trial. So everybody remember how Hamilton and Burr and uh, one of the other justices uh, became a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Brockholtz Livingston were the lawyers in the first trial of the century. They represented in the year 1800 a criminal defendant, <coughs> excuse me, by the name of Levi Weeks in this very important criminal trial in New York. So long story short, the John Lansing, who was an anti-federalist who fought adoption of the Constitution at the New York Convention in 1788 time frame, he was the, one of the judges in the Levi Weeks case. Wow. So here we're connecting some of these names, and once you start seeing them, they you know, they repeat in history because these are the these are the very prominent uh, you know opinion leaders and prominent uh, revolutionaries in that time period. Uh, and it's interesting how you know we, we joked when we talked about the Levi Weeks trial. Why did Hamilton bring in Burr on this case for the two of them to be co-counsel along with the third judge, who was Brockholtz Livingston? And a part of the answer may have been, you know, Lansing did not agree with Hamilton. They, they went each other's way. They, they departed ways at the New York Convention, and they were, I won't call them enemies, but they were taking different political positions. So it may well have been, and here I'm speculating, that Hamilton may have wanted, um, for a whole host of reasons, Aaron Burr to be his co-trial, because Aaron Burr may have had a good relationship, for reasons we could talk about later, with John Lansing, who was one of the judges in the case. Wow. Jeez. So here you got some interesting uh, coincidences. Uh, who are some of the other anti-federalists? John Winthrop, he wrote under the name Agrippa, A-G-R-I-P-P-A. We mentioned that Mary Otis was a anti-federalist who wrote, um, I, I think she wrote under the pseudonym Columbia. Well, that's the first woman. What role did she play, and how did she get there? So she was related to uh, another Warren, and the, the Warren that she was related to was the, the famous... Uh, the, the, the founding father who died at the, the Battle of Bunker Hill. 
Oh, uh, Dr. Cool. Joseph Warren. So Mary Otis was related to, through marriage, uh, the Warren family were very prominent in Massachusetts. In fact, when we talked about the, the suffix resolves, the author of the suffix resolves was Dr. Dr. Warren, who was related to Mary Otis, who was the anti-federalist from Massachusetts. Holy moly. And, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about you know the, the politics and how... Um, Back then, there was some degree of civility, and I want to emphasize what I thought was very interesting about the civility. Even though they passionately disagree with each other, and I'll give some other names, John James Monroe. So James Monroe is an anti-federalist, and in Virginia, you know, there were a good percentage of the population was anti-federalist, and a good percent was federalist. Uh, but there was no guarantee that Virginia would ratify, but James Monroe was an anti-federalist. So who is James Monroe? And we mentioned James Monroe. How do most people know the name James Monroe? What, what did he eventually become? president after Madison, and the, he proclaimed the Monroe Doctrine, which was to keep European powers out of the Western Hemisphere. Because they were collecting debts. Well, whatever it was. He, he didn't want, yeah, he didn't want Europeans' powers collecting their debts in person in, the, in, the, in our hemisphere. their influences. So he goes, oh, we'll be your debt collector. Mm. You don't want any excuses for their navies to be on this side of the planet. And yep. look how all that ended in 59. 61. Eh, uh, I don't want to have you guys go off on too much of a... Uh, oh, no, okay. I, I was, no, yeah, forget it. But everyone understands who James Monroe is. He became the fifth president right after Madison and then Monroe. So James Monroe, this is quite interesting. So we mentioned Patrick Henry was one of the anti-federalists, very prominent in Virginia. And Patrick Henry uh, did not support Washington, did not support Madison. And Patrick Henry made it so, and we talked about this last week, that James Madison was not going to get selected by the Virginia legislature to be a senator. So instead, Madison had to run for Congress from Virginia. So Patrick Henry made an arrangement whereby James Monroe, an anti-federalist, would run against Madison. So Madison had to campaign. He had to go out in his local community and campaign to be elected to Congress. And, of course, he became very prominent in that first Congress. He worked very closely with Washington. We mentioned how he wrote for Washington his inaugural address, and then he wrote the response by Congress to the inaugural address, which a lot of historians, including me, like to point out that this is Madison writing to Madison. So he was very prominent in the first Congress, James Madison. Also, he of course, he wrote the Bill of Rights. So what's the point? The point is that Madison had to run for Congress, and he faced a, a real big political battle fighting against, in a political campaign against James Monroe. So the two of them, that's the first election to get elected to Congress. So this, I thought, was very interesting, that even though Madison and Monroe are running against each other, they would go out campaigning together. They would travel together. Guess what they would do for dinner often? Dine together. They would dine together and take it a step forward. I, I was flabbergasted when I saw this. If you're Madison and you're Monroe and you're campaigning around the various counties where they're running in their congressional district, they're speaking at the same events, they are dining together, where do you think they're sleeping? They're, they're sharing a room and hopefully not a bed. Can you imagine today if you have a member of one party campaigning in the same room with someone from the other party? Yeah, Trump and Biden in the same room together. <laughs> I, 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 wanna, I don't want to talk too much about today's politics, but just imagine. I imagine today, the brawl for it all. People in the same, people in two opposite parties sleeping in the same hotel room. And they both the come out with it. They had both been patriots. Uh, I know Monroe was a young He was a friend of yours. In Washington's army. Uh, I think he was at the crossing of the Delaware. So, you know, they were both, and it was a, a small and well, you know, very uh, tightly knit elite. So it's, it's a good thing. So 
these were the folks who were the founding fathers that they could, even though they're campaigning against each other, they could break bread together and, uh, in this case, travel together and uh, sleep in the same, I forget, it wasn't called the hotel, but the same, um, you know, what we were Lodging. Remember? Lodging Sorry? house. Yeah, whatever. Lodging house or whatever. Be careful not to say brothel. No, 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 no. Right, so here are some of the other names. So Richard Henry Lee, he wrote under the Federal Farmer, and John Hancock. These are all anti-federalists. So here it occurred to me that some of these names that we just mentioned were very prominent during the the prior government. Remember, what was the name of the government before we had the Constitution, which took effect in 1789? The Confederation. Art- Articles of Confederation. Articles of Confederation. Right. So the Articles of Confederation, some historians try to play this up. The Articles of Confederation actually had a president, and it was a one-year term, and it, it did have some powers, but it was mainly ceremonial and a figurehead. But uh, here, I'm going to point out to you, and I'll, I'm going to ask you a question, which isn't a fair question, but depending on how you define president, what date you use, who was the first president of the United States? And here I'm going back to the, con- the first Constitutional Convention. Who was the first president under the Constitutional Convention? John Hancock. Okay, so the first president under the Articles is a name most people don't recognize, John Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N. He was the, the first president under the Articles. The Articles take effect in 1781. So some people might call John Hanson the first president, or at least the president, the first president under the Articles of Confederation, 1781. And he was elected upon by, by the he people? He was elected by the states, right? So he is selected by the members of the the Confederation Congress would choose the president of the Confederation Congress. So he's kind of like a prime minister. I agree. He's, he's more similar today. We would consider it a prime minister. But he was called the president. Okay. And there are some historians that you know have websites you know listing all the presidents, and they don't start with Washington. They start with the presidents under the Articles and under the continent, the, con- the conventional or whatever you want to call it, the uh, Continental right. Congress. So let me give you some more, more interesting tidbits. So. You know, we're talking about a lot of the anti-federalists. So interestingly, John Hancock, who uh, I mentioned what happened with Hancock, he thought he might be able to become president if Washington, if Virginia doesn't ratify, Hancock had in the back of his mind, maybe he'll become the first president, and he's from Massachusetts, and everybody knows John Hancock, but he was the first president, I'm sorry, not the first president, but Hancock was a president under the Articles in 1785 to 1786. So he was a president under the Articles. So he had already been president, and he wants to come back maybe um, as the first president under the, the big constitution. So how do you like that? That Hancock had been a president. So he got what he wanted. Not the same. Not the same. It's the not, same. Definitely no. not the same. But not, the, Come on. Not the same. Give, the, give Hancock. like a prime minister. Fair enough. So you can functionally, he's similar to a prime minister. So Hancock had been president twice. He was president 1775 to 1777, and 1785 to 1786. Once under the the Continental Congress, and he was also president under the Articles. Also, Richard Henry Richard Henry Lee, who writes under the Federal Farmer. And when we when I talk about people writing under these pseudonyms, everyone knows about the the Federalist Papers. And Manny, help us out. Who were the three authors of the Federalist Papers? Tom Jay, Madison, and Hamilton. There you go. So the famous Federalist Papers, 85 essays written to convince the voters of New York. But Hamilton wrote the majority of them. Hamilton wrote the majority, then Madison writes a good chunk. John Jay gets six, so he only writes five of them. But there were also, they didn't call them the Anti-Federalist Papers, but today the historians group them together and they call them the Anti-Federalist Papers. But um, here I'm talking about Richard Henry Lee. He wrote essays under the title The Federal Farmer, and he was also a president under the Articles, 1784 to 1785. So the point is, some of the Anti-Federalists had been very prominent, including 
and I'm overdoing it a little bit, and, and Ed is trying to hold me back, but they, they've held leadership positions sure. under the Articles of Confederation and under previous positions through early American history. Now, well, the, one thing the, that the, I, okay, well, let me tell you, one thing that I think is really uh, exceptional about America is that both, both these parties, or the partisans, came together uh, in effect, like Edmund Randolph became Attorney General for George Washington in his first administration. Perfect. I'm glad you made that point because I was going to make it later. So Edmund Randolph, once he switches and supports the Constitution, and he had been Washington's personal lawyer, Washington appoints him as the uh, first Attorney General. And then later, when Jefferson moves on to step down, Jefferson had been the Secretary of State, then Edmund Randolph becomes the Secretary of State under Washington, the second Secretary of State. Here, here's another quick coincidence. That's called a that's called a cabal, okay? <laughs> you know? I'll throw this out at you and see if we can connect the dots. So go back about two months to all the listeners and go to the website, the Statutes and Stories website, which is statutesandstories.com, or go to the, the WSQF website and listen to the podcast. Well, no, the, your link is on there as well. Perfect. So here you can do either one, and we spent a fair amount of time talking about a name that I'm going to throw out, and I'm going to ask you to try to remember, when when did we talk about this name? But another president, and I'm calling it a little P president, under the Articles of Confederation was Arthur St. Clair. Oh, my God. How did God. we have the no name idea. Arthur St. Clair on a previous evening? We'll give you a hint. This has to do with executive privilege. Oh, oh the St. Clair. He was sent to uh, negotiate. So Arthur St. Clair was the general who wound up losing a battle, okay. the Battle of the Thousand Slain, and then Congress wants to investigate that military defeat, so they send a request for Washington to, for the communications, the St. Clair communications, to find out why did we have this battle, which is a big victory for the Native Americans, but why did our American soldiers get slaughtered? And that's the first instance, and Washington decided with Hamilton and Jefferson to release the, the documents that were being requested, the communications, because they didn't think it was anything that was sensitive, so they were willing to release it. But that was the first instance where executive privilege was analyzed by the cabinet. That was the same Arthur St. Clair, who was a general, who previously had been a president under the Continental Congress. All right. Well, that's that's today's Giuliani. Then. <laughs> and there's a transcript and everything. Right, so, this is, uh, history repeating itself. Oh, my God. So, so what I've tried to do is illustrate who some of the anti-federalists were. And we pointed out last week that we have a lot of respect for the anti-federalists because if they hadn't pressured Madison, we may not have a Bill of Rights today or at least a Bill of Rights that wouldn't have been in the format that we have it today. So let's let's see how we're doing in time. And the answer is we've got plenty of time. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the other amendments. And I want to tell a really interesting story about the 27th Amendment. So we mentioned the 27th Amendment is an amendment, is the most recent amendment. It was adopted in 1992. And let me back up by describing how Madison originally made 12, I'm sorry, 17 proposals. And once it goes through the Senate, they reduce it to 12. So the, there were the proposals that come out of Congress that are sent to the states, there were 12 proposed amendments, but the states only ratified 10 of the 12. And here the, the specific background is if there were, and remember everybody, <coughs> Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, but there were 12 amendments that were proposed, and Manny would be right to say that the First Amendment has five pieces to it, but still that's the First Amendment even though it has five pieces, and what are the five pieces of the First Amendment? Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to petition for redress of grievance. And assembly. 
freedom of assembly and then, um, you know, the, the separation or if you want to call it the, uh, the, the freedom of religion. All of which I was denied. Freedom of religion. Freedom right. of religion. So, and there are different components of freedom of religion. But the point is that there were 12 amendments that originally were sent to the states, but the states only adopted 10 of the 12. So here's where the story starts. Um, so a student at the University of Texas, and I, I think that uh, Ed will appreciate this, a student at the yep. University of Texas, and I'll tell you what his name is once I find it, Gregory Watson. He's writing a paper for either a government or a history class, and he realized that, hey, the original proposal from the first Congress was 12 amendments. What happened to the first and to the second amendment? And as it turns out, what we consider the first amendment today, which is freedom of the press, we just mentioned those freedoms that are very important in our first amendment, was actually the third proposal that would have been, if all 12 had been adopted, our first amendment would have been the third amendment. So what were the first two proposals that were not adop adopted? The first proposal dealt with, um, let's see, the first proposal, there were two that didn't get adopted. One was congressional pay raises, and another one had to do with the number of representatives in a congressional district. So that was apportionment. So the first amendment was apportionment, and the number of, you know, we would have uh, been enabled, enabled to have at least, I think, 30,000 members in each congressional district. So that's the first proposed amendment. The second proposed amendment is that Congress can't give himself pay raises. So this student at the University of Texas, this is in the early 1990s, he writes a term paper, and in his term paper he says that the original proposals didn't have an expiration date, and there's nothing stopping the different states. If they wanted to adopt what was the first proposed or the second proposed amendment on congressional pay raises, the second proposed amendment, then the states could ratify this today if they wanted to. And I'll point out that the more modern proposals, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment, had a shelf life that if it wasn't adopted, and I don't remember how many years, if it wasn't adopted, I'm, I'm making it up now, in 30 years, then it expires on its own. But the original proposals from the first Congress didn't have an expiration date. So the student writes a term paper. Guess what grade he gets on his term paper? Uh, a C or a D, he, he gets, protested. He gets a C on his term paper, and he yeah. gets furious. And he's pissed off, yeah. He's pissed off because he happens to be right that if the states wanted to ratify it, they could because it didn't have an expiration But date. some liberal was grading it, I suppose. So Gregory Watson <laughs> starts a letter-writing campaign. He reaches out to the different states, and he says, hey, this is pending. If you and your state were, were willing to adopt this limitation to put into the Constitution, which was proposed by James Madison, a limit that Congress cannot give itself pay raises during the same term, has to be the subsequent term, you could adopt this. So he does a letter-writing campaign, and most of the people he writes to, and he's writing to politicians uh, you know, from the different 50 states, most of them say, sorry, we don't need this because Congress wouldn't do it anyway, and the Congress has a policy of not making laws apply to themselves. Oh, we don't, we don't, yes. Uh, I'm sorry? B.S. Uh, the Obamacare, they excluded themselves from the Obamacare health care. So without <laughs> talking about today's modern politics, Come on, I'm well, trying to bait you. in 1992, so I guess I did open the door. So, <laughs> you know, he gets opposition that we don't need to do this because Congress won't do it. Even though they can do it, they wouldn't, and we don't need to clutter up the Constitution. But his response is, this was proposed by Madison. This isn't me, Gregory Watson. And eventually he starts making inroads with that Congress in 1992 time frame, early, early, early 90s, and he needs 38 states to ratify it. Long story short, after this legal wrangling and convincing Congress and getting supporters, in May of 1992, the Constitution was amended based upon George Watson's proposal to resurrect the original Second Amendment and adopt it as the 27th Amendment. And um, 
here I'm going to, I did some homework on George Watson. Uh, he, the, the media on the anniversary, so 20 years later, so if that was 1992 when it was ratified, 20 years later would have been 2002, right? I'm sorry, 2012. So in 2012, I found a newspaper article where the NPR was interviewing and they tracked down his professor. And they said to the professor, did you know that your student, Gregory Watson, because of his letter writing campaign, because you gave him a C, he winds up getting the 27th Amendment adopted. What do you think about that? And the teacher, guess what the teacher said? To her credit, what the professor does. I was wrong. The professor says, good for him. I'm going to give him an A+. Plus. Oh, she but changed the grade. Graduated. He, already, he already graduated. So also during his career, he contacted other states. He figured out that um, this is an example of how once, and we talked about this last week, once an amendment gets ratified, what the other states do is irrelevant because it becomes law. So Mississippi is an example of a state that never ratified the 13th Amendment. So he convinced Mississippi to ratify the 13th Amendment, and they eventually did. Now, here's another example that to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the um, of the Constitution, Massachusetts. Let's see, this is Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Georgia. Um, had withheld approval for certain of the amendments. So Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Georgia eventually in 1941 you know, ratify some of the other provisions of the Bill of Rights that they had not ratified before. So just an example of how sometimes uh, you know, historians can get people to, uh, you know, to pick up and uh, adopt things that had not been fully uh, approved in each we, of the 50 We should states. recruit this guy for the Convention of States movement. And it's about letter writing and doing homework and reaching out. Right. So let me talk now about... I think you should work on convincing these eight states that didn't ratify the constitutional amendment number 16 and tell them, hey, guys, you know, reevaluate this because you guys never ratified this. All right. Uh-huh. He wants me to let go of that one. It won't happen. So let me talk about the Third Amendment real quickly. And it was referred to as the Runt Piglet Amendment of the Constitution. So maybe if you open up your little handy Constitution manuals, and this is the amendment that's really never been tested in the court. All the other amendments have been, there's lots of legislative and and court history reported decisions. But the Third Amendment is something we've never had to test in the courts, and it hasn't really been controversial. So let me ask, uh, and just open up your books if you want, what is the Third Amendment, and why do they call it the Runt Piglet Amendment? Because it's never used, because it says, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any home without the consent of the owner, or in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. So this is a response to the Declaration of Independence. This was one of the grievances. Right. And here this gets to the brilliance of Madison. Who in their right mind, and remember, Madison has to get a Bill of Rights because they promised in Virginia and Maryland that was the Maryland Compromise that will do a Bill of Rights. So the anti-federalists, we mentioned the names, the Patrick Henrys of the world and the, the George Mason, they're trying to weaken the federal government. They want a new convention, and they want to take away taxing power. They want to weaken the federal government. They think the power, of the necessary and proper clause and the supremacy clause give the federal government too much power. They want to redo the convention and take away some of that power. They're, they're states' rights supporters. So the brilliance of Madison was realizing, and part of it was Jefferson, and part of it was that he has to run for office. So, so Madison realizes that do a Bill of Rights that's not going to be controversial. And the Third Amendment is a perfect example. The Third Amendment that you can't quarter troops. Who in their right mind is going to oppose that when they fought a war with the British over that concept, among others? And you mentioned it, Ed, that that's in the, in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, it's one of the grievances. grievances. So that's an example of how Madison prepares a Bill of Rights that will get broad support, 
will preserve the structural integrity of the Constitution, that will, it will co-opt the anti-federalists, it will take the steam out of their position. And remember, we gave Eldridge Sherry as an example. Eldridge Sherry, when it's being debated in Congress in 1790 timeframe, Eldridge Sherry doesn't support a lot of the federalists are now supporting a Bill of Rights, and the anti-federalists are now opposing it because the anti-federalists were coming up with the excuse that it doesn't go far enough, it's not strong enough, and they wanted to spend more time debating it and fleshing it out further, and they didn't want to lose their ability, uh, they didn't want to lose their big issue, which might give them the ability to do a second convention. So Eldridge Jerry uh, is now, as a anti-federalist, he's voting against or not not supporting the Bill of Rights. So that just goes to show how politics makes uh, some interesting dynamics. So that's the brilliance of Madison, of doing a Bill of Rights that uh, could be broadly supported and takes the wind out of the sail without amending the Constitution. And that's another point. The Bill of Rights, you know, the anti-federalists wanted to amend the Constitution. The Bill of Rights, which is the first ten amendments, we call them amendments, right? But they didn't really amend anything in the Constitution. They just added additional rights. And the First Amendment is a perfect example, as is the Third Amendment. But now I want to move to the Ninth Amendment real quick. And how are we doing on time? All right, so the Ninth Amendment. Nine minutes. All right, so the Ninth Amendment, and this gets into this concept, and maybe we'll have time for, for the concept of incorporation. Maybe we'll do it another evening. But uh, the Ninth Amendment, and Ed, if you want to pull out your Ninth Amendment from your, your handbook, but this sure. is something that was very important to the anti-federalists. So what does the Ninth Amendment say? The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So here we're going to ask the question. Remember, the Federalists were originally concerned that if we list rights, then we're going to lose the rights that we don't list. So right. what is the purpose of the Ninth Amendment? To settle them down. To tell yeah. them just because rights are not enumerated here doesn't mean that you don't have those rights. Exactly. So here I'm going to get into some of the controversy about the Ninth Amendment. And let's talk about the Ninth with the Tenth. So what does the Tenth Amendment say? And the Tenth Amendment reserves power to the states and to the people. So the Ninth and Tenth were really things that were given to pacify the anti-federalists uh, to show that the federal government isn't all-powerful, uh, even though the federal government was only intended to be a government of express powers in Article One, etc., of the Constitution. So what is the controversy and some of the, the the different uh, judges and justices will debate about the importance of the Ninth Amendment. So here I want to refer to um, some of these will be judges and justices that you like, some will be justices that you don't like. But Justice Goldberg, in mm -hmm. the case of Griswold versus Connecticut, which recognizes a right to privacy, and it's an important case we can talk about maybe another evening. Um, so Justice Goldberg, in that case, Griswold versus Connecticut, is relying upon when judges talk about privacy, they're relying upon the Ninth Amendment, because the Ninth Amendment says that rights which aren't otherwise mentioned, you still have those rights. So that's one of the reasons why some of the justices who want a broad, powerful constitution and rights, and want to recognize rights that aren't listed in the Bill of Rights, will point to the Ninth Amendment as a repository for privacy rights and other rights. Let me, If I'm going to mention Goldberg, let me mention who's a liberal judge. Let me mention a conservative judge, Robert Bork. So what does Robert Bork think about the Ninth Amendment? I have no idea. So here I'm going to quote from Robert Bork, but he dismisses the Ninth Amendment as analogous to an inkblot on the Constitution. So from a strict conservative here, this is at least judicially, legally, so Robert Bork was not a fan of the Ninth Amendment because he doesn't like being able to infer rights from the Ninth Amendment, and we could debate about what the Ninth Amendment does and what it's intended to do. But that's just an example of how, um, you know, 
different rights and over time things take on different meaning and when you use broad language and I think that's also part of this conversation the framers because they had to compromise used words that this is a larger conversation about how you interpret constitutional documents so uh, the, the point is that there's different opinions on how how broad and right. how meaningful but, is the ninth amendment but I would argue that what Justice Goldberg was doing was legislation finding new rights uh, at le- if 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 Goldberg wanted a, a right to privacy in the Constitution, he should have joined the Convention of States movement and promoted Amendment Number 28, which would create a right, you know, the rights of the people to be secure in their privacy. Their right to privacy shall not be abridged. But he didn't. He legislated from the bench, and that's the issue. So this gets to to understand the debates today. I give everyone, and this is the reason for this hour, is we give you a footing in where the history comes from, and people can debate about what it means today. The the last topic that we'll touch on and to be continued another evening is this concept of incorporation. And remember, Manny, we mentioned how the Constitution, I'm sorry, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, only applied to Congress. Congress, that's really one through eight. Congress can't do this. Congress can't do that. Congress can't infringe the right of the free press. Congress uh, you know, can't deny the right to habeas corpus and a jury trial. So that's Amendments 1 to 8. So what is this idea of incorporation? And once the Civil War is fought and once the 14th Amendment is adopted, the 14th Amendment gets interpreted as applying, and it was done over time, applying the Bill of Rights to the states. So let me give you the first case which uses this concept of incorporation, which is now referred to as the incorporation doctrine. And the case that I'm going to mention is Gitlow versus New York. That's spelled G-I-T-L-O-W, Gitlow versus New York. This is in the time frame of uh, the Red Scare in 1919. And the fellow who gets arrested is a socialist. His name is Gitlow. He was also a member at various points of the New York legislature, and he is a publisher. And during this time period when we're concerned, because this is when the Revo- Russian Revolution was to place you know, during World War One, we're concerned about communism spreading. And this individual, Gitlow, is writing a manifesto, and we know where the word manifesto, where that comes from. But he's writing a manifesto, uh, and he gets arrested under a New York law which criminalizes anarchy. So he gets arrested under an anarchy law for what he publishes. And here, this comes into conflict. Does the First Amendment apply to his publication of a manifesto claiming, and it was really, when you look at the, the, the language, he wasn't advocating a communist revolution today. Instead, he was describing the historic analysis, and he wasn't advocating was his defense. Uh, and he was talking about a revolution in the indefinite time frame, not an immediate time frame. And the, the legal issue in this case of Gitlow versus New York is that there was a test on the clear and present danger test. And that was written, by the way, by a very famous justice, and that's Justice Holmes, the clear and present danger test. So you can't yell fire in a theater, but you can talk about the right to set fires as long as you're not doing it with a clear and present danger. So the issue in Gitlow was whether or not the First Amendment would apply to New York State. And long story short, you get a dissent in the case, Holmes and Brandeis dissent, but the majority of the court, which includes, uh, and here this isn't fair to ask, there was one president who then later served on the U.S. Supreme Court. Hughes. No, not Hughes. Taft. 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 So William Henry Taft. You beat me. Taft is the Supreme Court Chief Justice, 
Yep. This is in the 19, um, Statues and stories. So we're going to have a Bill of Rights Part yeah, 3. We'll, we'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it next week. And I think we should, uh, I want to go into uh, Griswold some more. Was that the case about the penumbras and emanations? So the case I just mentioned is Gitlow versus New York. We can also talk about Gideon versus Wainwright, which is incorporation of the Sixth Amendment. And uh, I also don't want to leave out because I know you guys like to talk about gun rights. Yep. When you get a chance, look at McDonald versus Chicago. Okay, yes. And, and Barron versus Baltimore, and that's a Marshall case. So we'll talk about some of these cases. Okay. And we'll continue a discussion because the Bill of Rights, we could do that for uh, for many hours, but maybe we'll just limit it to three, Manny. Uh, that's okay with me. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Very enlightening. And in the Northwest Ordinance, we got to do. Oh, that's right. Remind me, because I want to read from the Northwest Ordinance. Yes. And it is fascinating to yep. look at the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Stay tuned, everybody, for next week. Take care, my friends, and stay free. That's the end of our Statues and Stories. We'll be back next Monday with or without Ed. No, I'll be here. You know, he's a grandfather now, so, you know, he might bail on us. Take care. Uh